With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside my co-host Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay. And uh, it's been a it's been a minute since uh, Corbin and I have uh, have done an episode. Very excited to to uh, to speak with him as uh, we we're finally getting Corbin to some some uh, classic NBA discussions yes. here. It's uh, with with this shortened off season and of course last year's shortened off season. We haven't had a ton of time to get into it, and and unfortunately, even even this time as well, we're probably only going to be able to do a couple episodes worth of classic content. Uh, but uh, I'm very, uh, very much looking forward to it. But, you know, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing good, man. I mean, we were talking before, just tech decides to go out on you in the worst ways. Okay, I can't say I dropped my phone in the tub. But anyway, I keep saying tub in the sink. Point being, um, aside from that, I'm doing quite well. Excited, like you said, to do some classic series. Uh, a bit bemoaning the fact that you're right. We won't have too many of them. Training camp is literally, what, next week? Media day and all? So yeah. we're going to be, I mean, from when we're recording this, it was going to be kind of crazy. So yeah, not a whole lot of time, which brings it to my eye. Cause you know, classic basketball is one of my favorite uh, romps there, Garrett, but you know, getting on a pod with you is always a great thing. So I am a bit pumped. Well, and I just got to, uh, I just got to shout out what Corbin has been doing for anyone that has is primarily listening to this podcast and hasn't been listening to Corbin's podcast, Round Ball Ramble, you have got to remedy that immediately. He is doing some fantastic work uh, putting up, uh, you know, uh, basically he's the most prolific podcaster in the world right now, I would say. He's, I appreciate uh, you, bro. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't keep up with it, but it is everything that I have been able to uh, to consume has been fantastic. Thank you so much for the kind words, bro. You know, I'm just trying out here. You know, we're getting a lot of um, off-season uh, reviews done. Uh, we're gonna ramp up into some divisional previews. Like it don't stop here. You know, we're just getting really started, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. And I appreciate, you know, when you get kind praise from someone like you, man, that that means a lot. So thank you for that. 
just try to keep at it, you know, keep this momentum once the grind really starts. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, uh, I was even, uh, I had the pleasure of being on an episode and we talked to Toronto Raptors. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, you Please. can check that out. Uh, as far as uh, as far as this episode, this is uh, going to be another edition of our best of the rest bracket. And uh, anybody that uh, is new to listening to this pod, this started we we uh, I basically created this last year, and essentially what the goal of it was was to kind of select some of the best teams in NBA history that failed to win a championship. If you're interested in some of the rules, how I came up with uh, some of the teams and and sort of the formulas that uh, determine the seeds of these teams, you can check that out. Uh, we we did three episodes on this uh, in uh, July of 2020. So go back and into the Duncan Dynasty feed and check that out if you're looking for more of an introduction to this concept. But uh, for this episode, we're going to be getting into some first round matchups. It's just a fun way for us to uh, talk about some old school teams and compare eras and, uh, you know, see how some of these uh, teams would match up. And we're, we're going to be discussing two matchups today. The first is a, a matchup that, uh, that I picked, and that's the two-seeded Chicago Bulls from 2011, the year Derrick Rose won the MVP. And they'll be matched up against the 15-seeded Los Angeles Clippers from 2006, led by Elton Brand. And then later in the episode, this is a matchup that Corbin selected. It is the five-seed Minnesota Timberwolves from 2004. That was Kevin Garnett's MVP season. And they're taking on the 12-seed Philadelphia 76ers from 1990, which, uh, with uh, Sir Charles Barkley kind of getting into his uh, early peak of his career. So a couple of fun matchups, but Corbin, before we get into that, I I thought we would just briefly discuss the news that that broke today. And that is uh, that JJ Redick after 15 years in the NBA is, uh, is finally calling it quits and announced his retirement. Yeah. It kind of came as a surprise. First thing in the morning, uh, credit to him for, you know, putting it going on his terms, first of all, and also, you know, sharing it information through his own platform, taking more agency in that, Um, you know, the newsbreakers usually, Report it, but no, J.J. Reddy reported his own his own retirement, basically saying he wanted to focus more on his family, and that's admirable, especially, you know, considering he had 15 solid years, had a great career um, across a number of teams, and and yeah, you, you got to give a shout out to that. Well, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's also, it sort of feels sudden, given that really it wasn't until last season where you really even started to notice that he was aging. I, I think even his, uh, his first season in 1920 with with the Pelicans, he was he was excellent. The year before that, of course, he was competing on a championship caliber team in the the uh, Philadelphia 76ers, and and even prior to that, it was the Clippers. So he had a really good extended uh, extended run of of quality basketball. And then last year, he was dealing with some various injuries, and yeah, did not perform well really for for either New Orleans or Dallas. But you know, it uh, it is one of those things where uh, the the downfall of some of these players happens quickly. And I, I guess for, for JJ, he recognized that, uh, you know, as opposed to sort of uh, trying to turn it around, he, he kind of just is accepting his own basketball mortality and says, you know what, I, I just don't have it anymore. Uh, I'm not going to extend this, even though like, you know, he's, he's still technically an NBA caliber player, but uh, you know, he, 
he has a certain standard for himself and he didn't live up to it last season. Yeah, that's for sure. I think that ankle, the ankle injuries he had um, really robbed him a little bit of that movement that was such a, a key factor from getting open, springing free for shots, you know, being that active floor space on the offensive end. You had a little bit of that regression. He wasn't getting any better on the defensive side of the ball. And it was a disjointed year last year. You know, a little bit of turmoil in terms of being moved on from New Orleans to a team that he didn't exactly want to be traded to after, I guess, he felt he communicated clearly enough to the Pelicans front office and they thought he had an agreement. It was a lot going on. And, you know, it's understandable that he goes into this year and he's like, okay, I'm just coming back off of these injuries. Uh, you know, free agent. Do I really want to go through the grind all over again for, you know, just at best one more year? And he decided no. Well, and the other thing that's impressive about just J.J. Reddick's life in general beyond just, you know, he was the, probably the most famous college basketball player, maybe still one of the most famous college basketball players that have ever lived mm-hmm. uh, when, when he played at Duke. And, and, yeah, struggled early in the NBA but kept working and, and carved, out a, uh, carved out a 15-year career in the league. You know, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's – He's done some some great stuff off the court as well with his podcast. And, uh, you know, he um, he's really made that more of something that I think players are considering is uh, and and also um, through his podcast, we've gotten to experience a lot of players and see a different side of them that, that we just wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to otherwise. Yeah, it is true. A lot more personality, a lot more maybe behind the scenes, some interesting nuggets of information when he interviewed players. Yeah, you, you've, we've gotten a lot of access um, to the NBA through his pod, uh, and I guess we can only expect to have more of that, you know, with the more free time he's going to have his hands. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, we, uh, we of course, here at Duncan Dynasty wish uh, J.J. nothing but the, the best with his, uh, with his retirement. So, uh, Corbin, let's let's move into this first matchup. Let's get into it. And again, this is the this is the two seeded Chicago Bulls from 2011 versus the 15 seed Los Angeles Clippers from 2006. That uh, 2011 Bulls team they uh, they were you know the the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Eventually, lost in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Miami Heat in five games. They were eleventh uh, in offensive rating but number one in defensive rating. And when you, when you watch this team play Corbin, it's just very evident, man, this team has a ton of defensive talent. They of course have a very, very good defensive coach in Tom Thibodeau. And not only, not only do they have the top tier defensive talent, but they've got depth defensively as well. Yeah. You can tell, like you said, Tom Thibodeau really put his imprint on this Chicago Bulls team on the defensive side of the ball. And that's really where their bread was buttered and they really made their their money on that end. I used two different analogies on that, didn't I? Yeah, I think <laughs> I did. Anyways, um, yeah, no, you had, like you said, a, a lot of defense up and down. I look at guys like Luol Deng, you know, Ronnie Brewer, Taj Gibson. Uh, of course, Joe Kim Noah, who was really the anchor of that defensive lineup and made the whole thing work. But off the bench, Omar Ashik was no joke. Keith Bogans, you know, good for the, the honorary starting spot. Um, Kurt Thomas had experience there. You had a, a defensive uh, pressure guy in, in C.J. Watson off the bench at the guard position. You had a lot of guys who, like, skewed defense first with just enough offense to make themselves uh, make the whole thing tenable. Yeah, and uh, you know they were very reliant on Derrick Rose to to keep them afloat offensively. Mm-hmm. You know, not only with his bursts in transition, but in the half court, his uh, driving to the basket, 
uh, you know, forcing help and also opening up offensive rebounding opportunities. You know, this was a was a solid rebounding team as well, especially on the uh, the offensive glass. And uh, yeah, it was interesting because you know, similar to uh, Tom Thibodeau with uh, with Alfred Payton this season with the Knicks, he had a similar thing with Keith Bogans. I don't think Bogans was you know, one of their top five or even top seven guys on their roster, but he still got the start. The, uh, even the Keith Bogans. Yeah. As they Duncan yeah. <laughs> perfectionally refers to, right? Yep. It's literally called the Keith Bogans where you start a guy for the first six minutes of each half and never bring him back in. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so, you know, he, he shot 38% from three and was, you know, an okay defender, but didn't, didn't provide a lot and, and certainly didn't provide as much floor spacing as like a Kyle Korver would. Um, and, you know, uh, we also have to uh, mention with, with certain guys, you know, that we'll be talking about uh, this is not Atlanta Hawks, 2015 Kyle Korver. This is a younger version. He's not quite as confident, not quite as settled into his career, but still a, a very promising young shooter at this stage. But uh, you know, the team, really didn't have a lot going on the offensive end outside of Derrick Rose, especially when he was off the court. You know, I think the the offense functioned a lot with sort of uh, Jerry Sloan flex action type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they put Carlos Boozer and Joaquin Noah at the elbows, and, you know, both of those guys could pass. And guys like Luol Deng and Derrick Rose, they were good cutters. But, uh, you know, at times, and especially, you know, I, I was watching that series, that Eastern Conference Finals series against the Heat, and at times the offense uh, looked looked fairly ugly. Yeah, there was definitely some lows there. You didn't really have a plethora of great outside shooting. You probably had, like, I would say just enough considering the error that they were in, you know, and, and we're saying error, it's been, what, just actually like 10 calendar years. But even so, you know, it wasn't a three-point, the three-ball wasn't as big, a focus as it is now. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you could notice the lack of floor spacing on the Chicago team. I mean, you look up and down, Kyle Corver really was their, their leading three-point shooter in terms of accuracy at 41%. Um, he actually didn't take the most threes per game. That was uh, Derek Rose and Luol Deng, who attempted the most. Derek Rose took a shade under five threes a night, shot at a 33% clip, not super great, you know. Um, Luol Deng took just over four attempts at 34%, which is a little bit better, although not by much. And after that, you're looking at, like, C.J. Watson, again, the aforementioned Keith Bogans, and then a blistering 57% from Rasul Butler, who played six games. So, you know, you weren't getting a lot of that. Um, Joe Kim Noah, offensively, I mean, it wasn't even like he would be in later years, where I think he'd be, like, a 15, 10, and 5 guy. Uh, he was just over a solid double-double, 11 and 10 for him. I think your next guy next to Derrick Rose offensively was a Luol Deng. He could do a little bit of everything, nothing well. Wasn't a great shooter, but like a solid enough shooter, a decent slasher. Okay, floor guy in terms of being able to see the floor. Didn't flash it too well in that year. That developed in later years. And this season, he had 17 points, uh, just under six rebounds and just over, or just under three assists per game. So nothing super fancy. And that's honestly what you could say for this entire Bulls unit as an offensive team. Like their, their best type of uh, equivalent in my mind was almost like that 2001 Philadelphia 76ers team where you had a lot of guys who knew their role could eke out just enough offense, but anchor themselves defensively around a guy whose job was to get these guys into whatever offense he could eke out of, as well as manufacture some on his own. Except I think that uh, as great as Derrick Rose was, Allen Iverson was on a whole nother level in terms of creating for himself. But I mean, 25 points, four rebounds, seven assists per game from Derrick Rose. That's nothing to sneeze at either. 
Oh, I, re- I really like that uh, 2001 Sixers comparison to this Bulls team because yeah, right. they, they both were uh, they both were dominant defensive groups, and yeah, uh, their their offense was just good enough because of a, a star player. And yeah, AI and Rose did it very differently. Rose mostly on the ball uh, with with pick and roll, pick and pop stuff with Noah or Boozer, and whereas AI yeah does does a lot of stuff off the ball, running off of screens. And, and yeah, it, it was interesting too to, to watch when Rose was off the court, the, the offense really shifted to Kyle Korver running off of screens like an, an Allen Iverson or a Reggie Miller, those types of actions. But uh, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about their opponent in this matchup, and that is the, the 2006 Los Angeles Clippers mm-hmm. team that uh, had the 17th defense overall and the, or excuse me, the 17th offense overall. And the sixth-ranked defense that season, they won 47 games, had a positive 2.4 net rating. And uh, this team, led by Elton Brand, who was really coming into his own as, uh, you know, one of the the best power forward, just big men in the in the sport. And uh, the the starting lineup for for the Clippers, you've got Sam Cassell, uh, 36-year-old Sam Cassell. Very true. Catino <laughs> Mobley, Quinton Ross, Elton Brand, and uh, Chris Kamen. And this team was, you know, watching this uh, this team, I, I watched a few of their matchups against the, the the Phoenix Suns in the second round of the 2006 playoffs. Classic series. Yeah, and uh, one of the, the most noticeable things about this team's offense was just how post-up heavy it was, you know, with – with Elton Brand obviously being a great post-up guy, Chris Kamen, solid option there when he's got a good matchup. Sam Cassell, even as the point guard, was a post-up guard. Katino Mobley as well liked to post up a decent about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the team was consistently going to that. Very rarely did they run just, you know, your your what you would see now in a, in a pick-and-roll spaced-out offense. They didn't take a ton of threes. But then their bench was interesting, and, and they maybe played a little bit more of an up-tempo style, more of an outside-in offense with the likes of Sean Livingston and Corey Maggette. Yeah, definitely good bounce on the bench. Uh, you know, you had a change of pace in Sean Livingston at that guard position from a Sam Cassell, who was a lot more deliberate. Um, part of that being his post-up style, part of that being that he was 36. So, you know, you did have a little bit of a difference there. But Sean Livingston, just a spry 20 um, pre-injury. I mean, I think his... his um, his his the way he played the stats don't tell the full story you know look at this look at his 5.8 points per game 4.5 assists but like the jolt of energy he gave i guess that's like symbolic of his entire career he was a lot more impactful on the floor than maybe the numbers suggest um at least on the onset the deeper numbers do support just how valuable he was but you had a guy in Corey mcgetty who i mean i i hate to use what people use a lot during the summer but he was a bucket you know, 17 points, um, five rebounds per game, just over two assists, shot it pretty well, 44% from the field, considering that he had a, a decent diet in mid-range Jays. Uh, shot the three, just enough, not really that great. But again, this is even farther back, 2006, so um, pretty decent for his time. You had Vladimir Rodmanovich, who um, didn't play a whole lot, but, I mean, he he was in the playoffs. He, he factored in there during that series. I watched a couple of those games as well. And uh, he was a, a Laker sniper as well, so I know him pretty well from that point. But um, he was someone else who could shoot three ball at a pretty decent clip, you know, with his 6'9", 6'10 frame. And this this kind of backup offensive unit, uh, especially when you throw in a defensive specialist like Quinton Ross, really did a good job of supporting the main five. 
Yeah. And uh, I, I was kicking myself, Corbin, because, you know, when I was on your podcast, you had me do my hoop, hoop vibes squads. Yeah, I, I came on and did your three teams. But uh, I, I was already mad because I'm like, what? How did I forget Corey Maggetti? He absolutely should have been on one of those teams. Dude, hashtag, are you ready for Maggetti? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like that guy was. A stud. I mean, even he's still cooking as of like two years ago on the big three. I mean, he retired from that just a little bit ago, but like at age 42, in between commentating for the Los Angeles Clippers, this guy was still getting buckets. He, he was a physical specimen as a player, um, kept himself in tremendous shape, was a beast in transition, had a decent, like I said, mid-range J, could stretch out to three. The guy was a bucket. He played well. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised he wasn't your team. I'm almost shocked I didn't have him on my own team, but he was probably a little bit of a team first player for that. Yeah, he might be one of the best, like, uh, one of the guys that I think works on both of our teams reasonably well, fits, like, both of the categories of players that that we like, even though we have some different tastes as far as that's concerned. But exactly, true. I would almost describe Maggetti as, like, you know, pretty close to prime Jimmy Butler offensively, minus the passing and the defense. Interesting. In terms of offensive style of play, Yes, I would agree with that. You're right. Defensively didn't have it. The passing wasn't there either. You know, that's actually a kind of apt description. Definitely out there in terms of, like, I would never have thought of it. But, yes, wow, that's very good. Yeah, like, he was a guy that consistently got to the bucket, got to the free throw line. And, yeah, like, you know, I I, uh, I think he had a, a decently reliable mid-range jumper at times as well. Although, yeah, as, as you said, sometimes he, he liked it a bit too much. But, no, definitely. He healing on it. But um, yeah, so getting into, I, I should I should state as well, with all these matchups, we're talking about uh, these two teams facing off in a seven-game series, and the Chicago Bulls in this matchup have home court advantage. So in the games, uh, in games one, two, five, and seven, it will be in Chicago under the 2011 rules of the NBA, and in games three, four, and six, it'll be in Los Angeles on the Clippers court in the 2006 rule book. Oh man. So I guess Corbin, let, let me, let me just ask you this. And, you know, I, I picked this matchup because I think this is closer than most would suggest. And for a two, two versus a 15 seed, uh, I, I think this is actually reasonably competitive, but I'm curious to get your take on that. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I agree. Um, I looked at it first. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, you know, the Clippers were a fun team back then and all. But like, I mean, there's a reason there's a four, a 15 seed and a, you know, uh, two seed. But when you look at the style of play, I mean, it kind of does fit pretty well. You have two teams that are, are more plotting, more deliberate. You know, um, I want to say hang their hat on defense on the Clippers side. They had definitely a tremendous defensive balance. But you can look at the Bulls as either a defensive uh, powerhouse, which they were or offensively deprived, which you could also say they were. And the Clippers did have more on the offensive end, even if they weren't as style on the defensive end as the Bulls were. So I definitely do think it's a, a situation where styles make fights, and this is an interesting one. Yeah, and just speaking to the Clippers side of things and why I think they match up reasonably well, I, I, I talked about how the, the 2011 Bulls were, were heavily reliant offensively on the offensive glass. And the Clippers in 2006 were fourth in the NBA in defensive rebounding percentage. They uh, also, you know, when, when you talk about facing the Chicago Bulls, I think a, a key feature of that is having guys to throw at Derrick Rose. 
and you want to throw some size on him, but you also want guys that are still quick enough to uh, to not just get blown by off the dribble, right? And that's why somebody like LeBron James in 2011 was was perfect because he obviously had the great size, but also is uh, maybe the greatest athlete in the history of the NBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that does play a big part in that. But this Clippers team, you know, they can throw Quinton Ross, who I think was a very solid underrated defender, you know, didn't have a long career in the NBA, but, uh, you know, watching him play, like he, he was a decent, uh, a, a decent defensive guy that, uh, you know, was not much of an offensive player, but could hit a, hit enough open shots if you just left him wide open. But, uh, you know, he, he made defenses pay at times or at least kept them honest. But yeah, it reminds me of a lot like our Ronnie Brewer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so you throw you throw Quentin Ross on Derrick Rose to start the game. Ross, again, at 6'6", uh, not, not super, you know, he's pretty thin, but, you know, he's got the size and the quickness. Then off the bench, you throw Sean Livingston on Rose. So they've constantly got guys at 6'6", 6'7", with decent quickness, decent athleticism to put on the Bulls point guard. And then also, you know, the Bulls like to beat teams up inside, but like Elton Brand, Chris Kamen, those guys were were pretty darn good. I I like it. I think I think you're right on the inside. Um, having more of a defensive uh threat there. At the same time, uh, watching some prime D Rose, I respect Quentin Ross, and I respect the young Sean Livingston. I don't respect him that much. I think the size is good, but when you look at how even LeBron, who at his was literally closer to his peak at that point of just an all-time tear on the defensive end. And Derrick Rose could still, more or less, until LeBron really tied the clamps, get his. Um, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting. I still give Derrick Rose the upper hand on that. However, it's a lot to have on his plate, especially when you look at the fact that you're right. The Clippers' defensive guys, or the Clippers' bigs, I don't want to say defensive. Chris Kamen was was pretty stout there uh, at moments in his career. And um, if you look at um, Elton Brand, he could also do the job as well. Uh, and it wasn't like the Clippers had these low post terrors, with the exception, with the exception, I might say, of a Carlos Boozer. So you mentioned that uh, Derrick Rose got his in that series against the uh, the Miami Heat. I, I've, I've got to counter Corbin by saying that uh, he shot 35% in that five-game series from the field. You well, like I said, you had, a, you had a ticked off LeBron James. I mean, and this is one of the best – I mean, that 2011 through 2013, LeBron James, probably one of the def- best defensive perimeter players we've ever seen, if not best defensive player in terms of being able to switch one through five, be a rim protector, shut guards down. I mean, you're right. He definitely throttled Derrick Rose. Numbers look good. Efficiency didn't. You know, it's the, the, the good old-fashioned um, Russell Westbrook conundrum. At the same time, you're taking someone in Quentin Ross who, like, yeah, he was a good defender, but, I mean, he didn't stick around that long for a variety of reasons, one of which, in my mind, is that he was a decent defender. Um, I'm not looking at him or a young Sean Livingston, although the size and length are great. I mean, Derrick Rose was almost MVP for a reason. He had a lot of size and length on him during that 2010-2011 season with better, uh, you would think, coaching um, strategies and adjustments, and he was still the straw that stirred the drink for them so uh, maybe i think we're i don't want to i don't want to overstate which i think we are the clippers perimeter defenders i think that's the one advantage chicago has pretty clearly yeah um yeah i'm, I'm not suggesting that they're going to completely shut down Derek. <laughs> okay <laughs> i gotta make my case there however i say that only because i am conceding the fact that 
the bigs matchup probably goes to the Clippers in this one. I think that Joe Kim Noah, Joe Kim Noah and Carlos Boozer are solid. Carlos Boozer, especially on the offensive end, Joe Kim Noah on the defensive end for sure. But Carlos Boozer, I think that he'll he'll even out on the offensive end, but you weren't getting anything better on the defensive side from him. He was serviceable in Thibodeau's scheme. Whereas Joe Kim Noah wasn't the MVP candidate Joe Kim Noah that we knew of. He was a very solid role player who had yet to evolve then. Um, so I don't want to say we're getting that guy because we're not. And while it's a solid player, I do think when you put up against an Elton Brand or a Chris Kamen, who both had deep, talented, low-post bags, if you will, uh, that, that might be, a, at best, a decent matchup, at worst, a uh, side edge of the Clippers. Yeah, and, and speaking to both of these teams, they're, they're both relatively inexperienced playoff-wise. If you remember, Corbin, the, the 2010 Bulls, they, uh, they lost in round one to LeBron James and the Cavs, and that was kind of their first taste of well, I guess they they did they they lost in round one in both 2009 and 2010 to mm-hmm. to Boston in in 09 and then Cleveland in 2010. So they had had a small amount of of playoff experience, but no extended runs. Not anything I would say that like serious series where you know you're you're talking about two teams that were competing for titles. Uh, they they certainly were not at that level, and they really vaulted into that stratosphere with a great regular season. Uh, behind Tom Thibodeau and then this Clippers team you know they uh, they had recently drafted Sean Livingston they uh, they brought in Katino Mobley Sam Cassell uh, re-signed the likes of Maggette and Elton Brand and and those guys came into their own and so they kind of just came on to the scene all of a sudden and it was really unfortunate you know these two teams also are similar in that this was really the peak for them, and it looked like they were both going to have extended runs and be contenders for the foreseeable future. But uh, you know, injuries <laughs> derailed that. Obviously, with uh, with Derrick Rose and his ACL injury in 2012, yeah. and then also for the the 2006 Clippers, it was uh, the following year, the 2006-7 season, where Sean Livingston suffered that catastrophic knee injury. Oh my gosh. And then I believe the year after that was when Elton Brand suffered his ACL tear. So uh, it's a, it's an interesting comparison too of two teams that yeah came on very quickly and then it was over you know before you could blink. We're gone just as fast. Yeah, no, totally agree. And it was true. I mean, just as they really got off the ground, it's interesting to think about what both teams and what if you know in the Western Conference the Clippers. Um, if they had stayed healthy, you know, you're still contending against the Lakers team that was coming back that would eventually get Paul Gasol. You're still contending against the Phoenix Suns team that did knock them out that year in 2006 and probably even better in 2007. If you look at the Bulls, I mean, you still had a good team in Boston. You still had LeBron James, and, and especially when he went to Miami and, you know, you had the Heat team. Like, both of these teams, as solid as they were, you still would have to think, okay, where would they ultimately have ended up, you know, with the championship teams that we know evolved from those teams. So, Definitely interesting uh, to look at how quickly they came. And like you said, just how quickly they disappeared. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's what's fun about doing this sort of exercise is we get to we get to reexamine these teams and, and try to evaluate, well, just how good were they? And also, I like to think about how could they how good could they have gotten if, uh, if, yep. if uh, you know, the the injury bug didn't derail them, obviously. But uh you know, we, we talked about the star for the Bulls in Derrick Rose, of course, a terrific rim attacker, an unbelievable athlete, you know, one of the best similar to Russell Westbrook at his peak, or Derrick Rose was just an absolute sight to behold. 
driving to the rim, his speed, his explosion. He also was a, I think this was his, one of his better years as a mid range shooter, which is what sort of elevated him to the MVP beyond just the bulls being a, uh, you know, the, the, having the best record in the league, but uh, Absolutely. looking to the star on the Clippers side, and that was Elton brand who was absolutely sensational. He uh, had really, uh, you come into the league, he was a little bit overweight, but he was still a, a physical presence, really strong, muscular guy, a pretty good athlete. And and really, this was the year where he got into great shape. He had developed this, I believe this was his sixth year in the league. He had developed the jump shot to a point where, you know, he uh, he had the size advantage, the athleticism advantage, and he could just use those turnaround jump shots and hit those consistently and at times. You just didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, no, he Elton Brand, especially back then, give the ball to him, go down there, a couple moves. The guy was solid. And I think he was at his like absolute peak. And this is a guy who came in, you know, 99, 2000 with the Bulls, basically already kind of the player that he would be like could contribute immediately. So I definitely agree with you on that. I mean, this is where, you know, he had the mid-range J. He had the hook left, right. You know, he had uh, Arson on the low post. That was really solid. Yeah. and. We, you know, we did that, uh, that series, the 1984 first round Eastern conference matchup between the, the Knicks and the Pistons. And, uh, we, we were, you know, we were praising Bernard King in that series. And I watch Elton Brand and I think, oh yeah, there's, there's, there's some similarities here in terms of those, uh, over the shoulder jumpers and just at times seemingly being unstoppable. I think the difference with Brand versus a, uh, you know, a Bernard King, I don't think Brand was was quite as, you know, uh, great as far as attacking the rim offensively, but Brand was a, a significantly better defensive player. I mean, I, I think Bernard King was, was just kind of average on that end, whereas Elton Brand was a major plus and a big reason why uh, this, this Clippers defense was a top six defense in the league that season. And his uh, his combination of uh, his post defense, but then also his rim protection was was huge for this team. It was um, understated because he didn't seem like a he was a big guy, but he didn't seem like that huge of a guy. But I mean, the dude made his, his presence felt like we said, really kind of sneaky in the sense of low post defenders. You don't think of him back then. Mostly, you don't think about that Clippers team on the defensive side of the ball, but he held up really well against some of the behemoths back then when you still had you know maybe not a Shaq. But you still had some of these like low post guys, you know, Duncan at times that, you know, still played that kind of classic, uh, I guess you could say retro type of style. So let's let's get into some of the uh, the matchups here. And one of the things that immediately like if I'm if I'm going to look at uh, what are some of the advantages that Chicago has in this series, one of them immediately that, that comes to mind is you talk about. Uh, Sam Cassell as a point guard really liked to post up and he would take advantage of smaller guys. You know, you saw him take advantage of Steve Nash on numerous occasions Relentlessly. in that series. But against the Chicago team, I mean, Derek Rose was a big stout point guard, six, four. Uh, I'm saying was as if he's not still in the league. He, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, more his athletic prime. I could see him maybe getting posted up a few times more now than he would if we we're taking prime D Rose, physically speaking. Yeah, and even even Keith Bogans, you know, I think six six. Ain't posting up Keith Bogans. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. So you know, for for like the the likes of Sam Cassell and Catino Mobley, 
there's not a great post-up option there. Um, and, you know, you also talk about Chicago having a, a defensive savant in Joachim Noah, who they can throw on one of Brand or Kamen. But I assume in this particular matchup, you'd want to throw him on the Clippers' biggest threat in Brand. Correct. You've assumed correctly. Kamen was, I love his low post game. I watched a lot of it with that 2014 Lakers squad um, <laughs> up close and personal, but I had, I watched it before that. And I think that he was someone that was sneaky, um, ambidextrous, really put it to good use going over both shoulders with this shot. Um, really good low post game, good mid range shooter, solid guy all around, had a decent career as well. But Obviously, we're looking for the straw that stirs the drink for that 2006 Clippers squad. It's obviously out in brand. He could do it in bunches. He could do it consistently. He could do it in volume. And that's the guy we want to try to mitigate as best we can. And so we're putting our best defensive player there in Joachim Yo- Noah. Uh, hopefully that, that you know, he's going to get his, but that sort of reigns him in check. And we maybe platoon uh, Kurt Thomas, who was still, even at, you know, even his 15th season, a very good uh, defensive anchor. Um, we probably put him on uh, Chris Kamen to balance it out. Well, and Corbin, I saw this tweet and uh, from from Bailey Caldwell, who I, I believe you had on your pod recently, correct? I did. I don't did know if indeed. you saw this tweet, but uh, she mentioned that uh, uh, Joakim Noah was on uh, an episode of the podcast Knuckleheads, and uh, Noah <laughs> claimed that Chris Kamen was the first player to bust his ass in the league. Whoa. See, so it's better that we're not putting him on Cayman. Cayman was good. Like, Cayman had a multitude of weapons at his disposal that people forget about low post-wise. You know, looking like a big old lumbering big. But, like, no, the guy was, you know, at least kind of fleet of foot on the offensive end. Definitely had some value in terms of the way he was able to kind of get shot utility. Um, the guy had, I mean, what, no three ball, but like, come on for a center in 2006, that's, that's really good. Yeah. I still remember the first time I came across Chris Kamen was, uh, in the NCAA tournament playing for central Michigan, the Chippewas, and he just absolutely dominated. I think they yes. even made, uh, the sweet 16, uh, and, and he was, he was phenomenal, but yeah, he very talented guy. And, you know, again, speaking to, how these teams seem to be like poised to be good for a long time. You you talk about Elton Brand was 26, Maggetti was 26, Livingston was 20, Cayman was 23 in the 2006 season. Wow. And you, I don't even remember that. That's crazy. Like yeah. just how young these guys were. Like you said, maybe not a potential dynasty, but definitely a potential contender in the West for years to come if things didn't go awry as fast as they did. Yeah. And, you know, if the if the Bulls do go with and, and I agree with with your stance that uh, you put Noah on brand, but I do not like the matchup of Carlos Boozer trying to deal with with uh, Chris Cayman. I don't think that's going to go well um, for for Chicago. But the other thing I, I wanted to talk about, you know, speaking to both of these teams trying to score on the offensive end, mm-hmm. I think a, a big issue, and we've we've talked about. You briefly brought up the the lack of spacing on both of these teams, uh, but that was something that was very evident. Where you know, if you double the the Clippers with Brand or Cayman on the block, they'll pass it around and. They might get an 18-foot Quentin Ross jumper, and yeah, he could make that at times. But it's like that's you're not you're not like hating that as that that uh, as the end outcome as the defense. And then you know with Chicago as well, you see like a if they run a Derrick Rose Carlos Boozer pick and roll, you just show it Rose, force him to make the the pass to the popping Boozer, 
and then you can show off of uh of a roddy brewer or you know a keith bogans or one of those guys and you know again with both of these teams playing two traditional bigs as well even though yeah, I think uh, both power forwards on on each respective team could shoot the mid-range jumper. It mm-hmm. still was very clogged, and it was you know a situation where you see in today's game where if you double a team's getting a wide-open three with a good three-point shooter, that's just not the case with either of these teams. No, I agree. All offense is going to be like 20 feet and in. Like, we're going back to, like, <laughs> retro style. I mean, this might as well be like a 19... 19- uh, in 90s kind of time capsule game in terms of style, even though you have more modern players, you look at the way they play and it's still kind of relics of the past in that type of dated offensive sense. The floor is not spread. Even your your designated three-point shooters, your designated specialists like a Kyle Korver um, are, are still you know taking on such a little volume that it's barely a factor. So one thing I wanted to mention, Corbin, before we get into kind of the, the defensive side of things is, you know, Another reason why I thought this matchup was maybe a little bit closer than what the uh, the algorithm uh, suggests and also just, you know, the, the net rating and the, the, the records. Uh, of course, the Bulls were a 60-win team that season. Clippers won just 47. But this was also a year where Corey Maggette only played in 32 games for the Clippers. And uh, in, in these best-of-the-rest matchups, we're assuming both teams are fully healthy. And uh, in those 32 games that Maggette played, the Clippers were 21 and 11. So closer to like a 54 win type of team. So uh, also I I was looking at this as well. Again, the the team overall had a plus 2.4 net rating. Their net rating was plus 7.4 with Maggette on the floor. That's solid. That's solid. You can't, you can't deny the facts on that. Um, Yeah. Maggette was definitely an impact player for sure. I like Luau Deng. Um, I think that he'll be someone that, you know, was pretty stout defensively himself. Um, I don't think he's going to stop a Corey Maggette, quote-unquote, but I do think that he'll do enough to pressure him, make him uncomfortable, use that length um, and ability there. And so I am pretty um, comfortable having a Luau Deng there, even the Keith Bogans minutes that you get. I mean, obviously, he's not going to play much, and he's going to start, so we're not going to get a whole lot of that. But between Ronnie Brewer at 6'7", um, again, assuming health, you got another three-point guy and a, a decent defender in Rasul Butler at six foot seven as well. Uh, people forget James Johnson, even now who's playing this kind of defensive specialist, which probably kind of not his role anymore, slash kind of you know multi-positional defensive big for Brooklyn in the year 2021. Um, back in the year 2011 was a spry 24-year-old, um, six seven, two forty. Uh, in his first year out of Wake Forest, you can play decent def- defense as well. So I think the Bulls, if anything, have enough on the defensive end that while Corey Maggette does give them some additional boost, and we're talking about the Clippers in that case, I don't think it's going to be that um, big of an impact against a Bulls team that has, you know, some decently sized wing defenders that can make things difficult for him. Yeah, uh, that was that was the thing that was pretty evident to me was that like where the Clippers like to score their best their best scores, the the Bulls have some solid defensive matchups. And again, I, I think it works the other way as well, not only with the fact that the Clippers can throw some size on Rose, but that they have typically two bigs on the floor with solid rim protection uh, and, and a good defensive rebounding team. So a lot of uh, both of the team's strengths on the offensive end, I think are, are taken away a little bit. But uh, the, the other thing, 
you know, speaking, going to the defensive side of the ball for both of these groups, they're both just really well coached defensively. Um, you know, the Bulls obviously with Thibodeau and the Clippers with uh, Dunleavy, who of course coached uh, the the 2000 Blazers team that I thought was just a great team defense as well without having great individual defenders outside of like Scottie Pippen. Um, but both of these teams just really fundamentally sound on the defensive end. But I do think the Bulls have a few more of just those elite individual defenders than, than the Clippers do. Yeah, you could definitely tell, again, the personnel that was skewed that way. Again, you, like you said, great coaching on both sides. You know, between Mike Dunleavy, between um, Tom Thibodeau, you had good coaches who had experience in multiple years, you know, championship units, all of that. But I think that the person that was better suited um, on the defensive end, maybe uh, to the lack of the offensive side more so for Thibodeau, than it was for Dunleavy, but it plays more in the Bulls' hands in this particular series against a team that is coming with that same type of um, defensive ability, um, but just has a little more offensive juice as well. Yeah, and it, seemingly this would be a, a half-court affair. You know, the Bulls were just 19th in transition frequency on offense, and the Clippers were actually number one in uh, opponents' transition frequency. They allowed just 98 transition opportunities per game so this was definitely this this definitely seems like it would be a half court affair the bulls were you know number one on defense in the league and a bunch of categories including in the half court the clippers were a very solid half court defense in their own right mm-hmm. and uh you know the the thing that i think gives the clippers also a bit of a chance in this series a chance to pull off the upset is i i do just uh, i think they have the advantage off the bench with the likes of Maggetti and Livingston and even Rod Monovich i think he was a good fit with both Cayman and Brand i like those two i think that if anything i think that you're right you do have a little more juice there one thing i do worry about is that outside of post up offense which again Sean Livingston has a little bit more of that than maybe um, some like a Sam Casello or 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 um, Catino Mobley, but it's not that much in a scary way. I look at the offensive kind of production he was given then to what he would give in later years of the championship team. You know, enough to kind of pace the bench, but I don't think any game breakers here or there in that way, especially against a defense like the Bulls that's better suited to defend um, a Sean Livingston post ups than like let's say when he was eating on like the Cleveland Cavaliers in the, you know, mid to like mid 2010s. Um, I think again, you do have more size that can at least mitigate that you have more um, length and, and physicality that Maggetti, especially young Maggetti wasn't really doing a whole lot of. And again, you're not really thriving in transition and he was never a great jump shooter, um, a decent mid range shooter, but again, put that in with everyone else on the Bulls and Clippers in this series. So I don't think it's going to be as great of a challenge, but I do think, uh, you know, for, what it was the first year in the NBA like he definitely did give a change of pace to that team and he would have his moments against the Bulls for sure um Rod Monovich will be interesting as well as a stretch big I think if anything uh the advantage the Bulls might have is I mean you have five years of kind of adjusting for bigs who would shoot more from the outside to maybe cover that where maybe that was definitely a positional change or, or more of a I mean you already had you know stretch bigs for the last 20 years from the 1990s up until, you know, 2006, so the past, like, 15 years in that period. But he was still, like, a change of pace that teams, uh, nobly the Phoenix Suns during their playoff series, always seem to struggle to account for. I don't see that being an issue with Tom Thibodeau, though. Um, defensively, I do think they'll have someone out there um, that can, again, you know, he was getting those threes up, taking five per game. 
Uh, that was kind of his game, the outside shooting. There wasn't really a whole lot there outside of that. I do think that even with his height, that, you know, maybe the Bulls could um, kind of not live with his three-point shooting, but make take enough that he's going to make some, but not be an immense factor from there. Uh, Corey Maggette is the one guy, again, that I, I struggle with because watching his game and seeing a lot of it, like he would fit in now. Like that kind, that kind of game, he's going to get his. Uh, and I, I say that like, you know, as a decent uh, efficiency, you know, between 16 and 20 points per game. So he might be the one weapon that hurts us uh, or hurts the Bulls in this matchup. Um, but even then, I, again, the way that the Bulls personnel was assigned, you have three guys, you have two guys, six, seven, that can play multiple positions. One guy in six, five in Bogans who can play up one. You have three guys in six, nine between Lua Dang, Taj Gibson, that can kind of move around a little bit. And then again, you're bringing in James Johnson as well. The only real weakness I would see that would be matched up against McGetty would be a Kyle Korver. And honestly, he was good body-wise in terms of biting him up positional defense, but just with the quickness factor would totally lose it. But when you look at the personnel the Bulls have, it, it, even that, I mean, for a guy as good as McGetty was, he wasn't like this earth-shattering offensive player. He was just a very good offensive player. And the Bulls have very good defensive players. So I think it'll be a very interesting matchup at best. Yeah, the... The Maggetti Corver thing is hilarious because they uh, they both succeeded in the NBA for completely different reasons, and uh, right. I don't think either of them could guard the other. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but uh, they cancel each other out, man. Yeah, the um, the yeah, I I agree with your a lot of your your comments. I think you know if you're looking at the Clippers and how they're going to score against this Bulls defense, it's a you're hoping Brand is able to just be so good that it doesn't matter even if Noah's guarding him, they're still going to be able to utilize him and, and force double teams. Uh, you're going to utilize the Cayman mismatch against Boozer, and then also you know I, I mentioned that Sam Cassell was you know like to post up, but he could also do the off the dribble mid-range shooting as well. Uh, oh yeah. And, and yeah, you know, I, I said Sam Cassell was 36, but Sam Cassell is very like, you know, if, if anyone listening has not watched Sam Cassell or even older Sam Cassell, he's very Lou Williams esque and that he, that dude could just score and he could probably go into the, I mean, uh, he he could probably score at the age of 42 and, and put up 10 points a game if he got enough minutes in the NBA. Like the dude just knew how to put it in the bucket. Um, so his ability in the mid range is an option. And also, you know, the Bulls like to utilize that sort of ice defense where you you force the ball handler away from the screening action, which opens up the pop. And so Vladimir Rodmanovich, I think, actually is a great big option to have against the ice defense specifically. That would be that would be interesting. Yeah, I think I mean, you make up a good point, especially in terms of I don't know. Rodmanovich for me is a hard sell. I, I, I just I looked at his game and I was it was definitely a shock. And again, Phoenix was like, oh, my gosh when he came out there. But I, I think the Bulls, like you said, would have a decent strategy in place. Um, it might be a little bit to the undoing with that stretch factor. But like. Ah, that's a good thought. I'm thinking about Sam Cassell. I'm sorry. That's what I went back. <laughs> he was nice. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, 36, like, you know, he slowed down a little bit. But at the same time, um, I was looking at him for a separate project a couple weeks ago, and I feel like he had two – he got better, it felt like, as he got older um, to a certain extent. In terms of, you know, he, he was still able to kind of get, I guess for the third time I say, get his, you know. Um, well, and, and we're going to get to talk plenty about Sam Cassell because he's in the other matchup. Right? Exactly, right? <laughs> he's in the other one as well. I mean, the dude, again, 17.6 assists. He shot 36% from three. Didn't take a whole lot. Um, I would say middle of the pack for for the, the 
Clippers during that year, but still decent efficiency. And you're right. I mean, he had no problem getting it up. Um, I don't know. I just struggle to think that it'd be that, that maybe 26 year old Sam Cassell. Like he wasn't like, no, not even that. He played heavy minutes. I mean, we played 34 minutes a night, played more minutes than he did in Minnesota. I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. That's tough. The, it's the, not that tough for me because like I said, I'm still like, he's 36, but like, I mean, Sam Cassell was very effective still. Yeah. Uh, he's one of those guys that like, uh, yeah, I would say, um, he never really, I don't know if you could even say he had like a peak. He was just pretty good for a long time. Yeah, uh, there you go. That's that's the best way you'd say. Yeah, like very, very effective just over a decade and a half. Yeah. And like, like he didn't fall off until like the, just, I think the year after, this was his last like effective year. And then he did kind of fall off the face. Um, even then he was still good um, in moments for, um, a Boston Celtics team that needs some bench juice, but injuries kind of came. He had a stomach, uh, a stomach, um, I think it was a torn intestine that really kind of messed him up and his shooting just fell off by the wayside. But this is like his last, like great, like, like you said, effective year. And it was, it was a, it was a doozy. Well, yeah. And that was the other thing that was so demoralizing uh, about the, the Sean Livingston thing was because yeah, he was kind of going to be the, the heir apparent to Cassell as Cassell aged out Livingston would step up and take on a larger role. Mm-hmm. And obviously that, that didn't pan out. And uh, a lot of that, like you said, yeah, I mean, I read, I have to recommend a book too. Um, it's called the curse and it's about the Los Angeles, it's about the Los Angeles Clippers, like their entire history from become, from coming to LA into like toward the tail end of the Chris Paul, um, like just before the end of the Chris Paul era, uh, the Lob City era. And one thing that I really enjoyed about it was that it did cover in depth a lot of these, a lot of these years, you know, and it said the injury to Sean Livingston was huge because it did force an older injured Sam Cassell to play a lot more minutes than he was capable of playing at his stage. And that, that didn't help his effectiveness in play as well. I have that book on my shelf. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But Dude, I-, I highly, highly recommend that book. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's up next to my queue, but uh, yeah, the, the other thing that just speaking to, again, the Bulls offense, again, they were the 11th ranked offense during the regular season. I think a lot of that, though, is just, you know, when you've got a guy like Derrick Rose that is that athletic, he he requires a specific game plan. And, you know, on a night to night basis in the regular season, it's just too difficult to do that. Whereas in the playoffs, I feel like, you know, Chicago's not running very intricate sets. Again, like I said, they're kind of running the the flex action stuff where one big will set a cross screen and you're trying to get some post-ups. They'll run just a standard pick and roll at the top of the key or a pick and pop. And, uh, you know, when you're able to, as a as a team that is fundamentally sound defensively, like I think the, the 06 Clippers were, I think you're able to hone in, lock in on some of those actions and really make things difficult. So I I would expect this to be just a really low scoring series. But uh, yeah, Corbin, was there was there anything else that uh, you wanted to discuss about this before we get to our uh, our our series predictions? Not really. Uh, just first off, um, a shout out to give a pat on the back to us. We, we got some really good content deep dive out of a matchup that if you look at had some intriguing talent, but like most people probably look at it and go, oh, wow, the offenses were kind of bad. You know, um, defensively, these teams are boring. Like the analysis wouldn't really be there, but you know, look at us. This is what we do. Well, yeah. So do you want to pick your, uh, do you want to make your pick first or do you want to let me go? 
you know what? Um, I, I like, I think I had the better matchup. So we'll let you do the pick first. All right. So I, uh, I think this is a lot closer and I don't know if I uh, adequately conveyed that as we were talking through it. I think it's a very, very competitive series. Okay. I, uh, I would not be shocked at the end of the series. If you looked at the numbers and Elton brand was the best player on the floor, but all right. Given the given the home court advantage, given the the depth of defensive talent that this team had, I'm gonna go Bulls in seven. Bulls in seven. Wow. Okay. You. I mean, you definitely did. Testament to you for conveying just how close the series would be. Um, I took the Bulls as well. I took Bulls in six. However, um, I felt that it could be a close one. I just feel like defensively. I think that the Bulls have enough weapons that they can kind of mitigate some of the Clippers' strengths. Um, at the same time, I, I, I look at maybe a, a Derrick Rose kind of takeover game in a game the Bulls probably shouldn't win. Because as 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 confined as that team was, or as dependent as that team was on Derrick Rose and the offense he provided, and as much as maybe an outlier season his outside shooting was, I mean, it was very effective that year. You have to account for it. And the type of speed and athletic ability that he put to the table, I don't think the Clippers honestly had an answer for. Yeah, and I'll just say this too, you know, they're they're very different players, but that uh, that 06 Clippers team took the 06 Suns with the uh, the reigning two-time MVP Steve Nash, who was a great point guard in his own right, two seven games before falling to that Suns team. Um, so they they uh, were able to deal with pretty great point guards and still nearly win. So uh, I, I agree uh-huh. that Rose would prevent a lot of issues, present a lot of issues. But uh, yeah, I think it would uh, would still be pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's. Uh, I got I got to throw in my own little push back there, only because you get, they beat the the Suns right in Jack McCallum's seven seconds or less book, which I highly recommend. Um, you do know that Steve Nash was dealing with back pain most of that series yeah he was still pretty darn good though i would say <laughs> <laughs> i agree but I, I i'm with you on that i'm just saying if you take a hampered seat nash got seven and i take prime b rose i i don't know i i just I, i'm i'm staying on this point but i agree i agree with you in terms of a tough series nonetheless how about my counter to your counter is i think a 90 percent steve nash is better than uh, 100, 100 lies, lies. MVP Derek Rose over. No, I, I think that's an interesting counter. Um, certainly a take, sir. You're not really. Eh, you have some hot takes. Let me not say you're not the hot take guy. You have some hot takes in your past. But wow, okay, that's a conversation. Uh, that's a Twitter poll. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Steve Nash is a top 50 player of all time, is he not? He is. But if we're talking about like a greatest peak. I mean, that wasn't his peak year. That probably 2005. And you, you take 2011 D-Rose, mind you, a lot of it has been just pumped up to, you know, just historic, epic. You know, the legend of his his season lives on, uh, despite someone who averaged a very good. But, you know, 25 and 11, a lot of point guards have put that up in, in NBA history. At the same time, if you look at just the physical specimen that he was and just how he dominated just off of athletic ability alone and how dominant that athletic ability was, it hasn't been replicated. I mean, you see flashes in a John Morant. Um, you see flashes in a guy like a Russell Westbrook, I think would be like the closest analogy, or um, even a guy like a um, like a De'Aaron Fox. But you don't see a guy with the skill sets that Derrick Rose provided from that athletic peak. And I think that a lot of that he created for himself with that. And 
it hasn't been done since. I think that that's something that's just, I don't know. It's just a little harder for me to reconcile because of the fact that we probably haven't seen that before and we'll probably be hard pressed to see one quite like that again. I think we just, uh, <laughs> we just have a very big difference in opinion in super athletic point guards in Russell Westbrook and Derek Rose and how good they were at their best. I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> but uh yeah let's let's move on to uh the matchup that that uh, you selected which again is the five seed minnesota timberwolves from 2004 versus the 12 seed philadelphia 76ers from 1990 and uh, looking at these two teams the the 96ers 53 wins plus 5.1 net rating they were second in the nba in offense that season 16th in defense, the 2004 Timberwolves won 58 games, had a positive 6.9 net rating, were fourth in offense and sixth on the defensive end. But uh, let's go through some of the uh, the players on the Sixers. Their starting lineup, Johnny Dawkins and Percy Hawkins in the backcourt. They started Charles Barkley at small forward, Corbin, in yes. Yes, I love it. I <laughs> love it. Alongside a front court of Rick Mahorn and Mike Jaminski. Um, another situation where it's like two traditional centers and you're playing a power forward at small forwards. <laughs> so a pretty big team, obviously. And then off the bench, they had uh, Ron Anderson. And then also uh, most people know him as a coach, but uh, Scott Brooks coming mm-hmm. in as a backup backcourt player. Crucial uh, outside shooting. Yeah, what was what was some of your thoughts on uh, on on this Sixers team? First off, I laughed. At, well, it's funny. At first, I laughed when I saw uh, Charles Barkley the small forward. But then, in my mind, it kind of made sense because this wasn't an older type of slower Charles Barkley who'd been even in '93 had already been hampered by injuries and kind of took away some of the athleticism. And he still had a lot to give it from between '93 and '95 for the Phoenix Suns. This was a Charles Barkley that you know, was taking the ball coast to coast, was grabbing and running, was was a positional matchup at the small forward position because of how big and down he was, yet being six foot six generously. Um, definitely like that matchup there. Uh, the point guard spot was interesting. You did have Johnny Dawkins for some of the year. For the purpose of this series, we had him for all the year, but you had him. Um, actually, during the rest of the regular season, he actually goes down with an ACL tear, and they bring in a veteran, Ricky Green, who uh, played a lot of the 80s with the Utah Jazz, uh, was a decent outside shooter, and was known for his speed, although by the time he got to 76, that had mostly dissipated, um, although he was still good enough to get the ball up the front court very quickly. Um, but that was the backcourt for them. Shooting guard, you had Hersey Hawkins, who was really, uh, he felt more like a modern two-guard. Um, you know, you didn't really put the ball on the floor too much, but definitely was great coming around screens and, and taking jump shots. Took three of uh, the three ball to high volume, shot at a good clip, took it a high volume for 1990. Corbin, I, I I was watching a game between the, the Sixers and the Cavs in the 1990 Eastern Conference first round. And I, I, I had to rewind it because I couldn't believe what I saw. But Hersey Hawkins uh, in transition, got the ball, got a pass on the right wing. Did a shot fake. The guy jumped. And unlike, you know, everyone else in that era who would take a dribble in and take a 15 footer, he took a sidestep three in 1990. Right. He was ahead of his time a little bit as a shooting. 
he definitely he definitely had some some of that in his bag, and it was really cool, especially young Hersey Hawkins. I think you know he's kind of he became a decent like role player shooting guard. Um, back in 1990 and 1991 as well, he was kind of being talked about as the next like superstar. Um, that didn't really dissipate until 1993 when you kind of saw that he was what he was. But at 23, you know the guy was solid. Um, Hawkins over that year was. Uh, second in scoring, 18 points per game. Didn't give you a whole lot else. Three rebounds, three assists per game. Uh, but shot 42% from three. Took 200 threes that year. Um, you know who else took 200 threes? Uh, well, no, I'm not going to play. Who else almost took 200 threes? I'm just kidding. It was Charles Barkley. He didn't almost do it. But Charles Barkley was three happy, too. I know you're going to get to that later, so we won't touch on it right now. But Hawkins was the leading three-point shooter for the 76 by a wide margin in terms of volume, in terms of accuracy, but was a deadly just jump shooter in general. Um, was a key component of their offense. If you look at um, the bigs, Mike Jaminski uh, had a deadly accurate jump shot. You really got that from the mid-range a little bit. Rick Mahorn was really a garbage guy. Didn't really do a whole lot. He would take a mid-range, Jay. Not sure why, but, you know, um, he would definitely kind of, you know, bang around the boards, bring some of that intimidation factor. He was more of that role, um, that intimidator that was still very much in vogue in 1990. Um, Then off the bench, like you had a Ron Anderson, another big who could shoot the ball a little bit. Um, out for mid-range, a Derek Smith, who was an electrifying swingman before he got uh, injured. Um, I think he tore his ACL badly um, when he was still with the Clippers. Um, by the time he went to the 76ers, I had mostly dissipated, but he was still a very good uh, mid-range shooter, a decent slasher, and even shot the three-ball a little bit as well. And then Scott Brooks, again, another guy who brought spacing um, out to the three-point line for the Philadelphia 76ers, a team that really kind of needed that, uh, that offensive punch. They shot uh, a decent 34% for that time from three. Um, but if you look at where a lot of the volume was coming from, um, you're looking at a guy like Hersey Hawkins, and then you look at a Scott Brooks, and then you have a guy like a Derek Smith and a Johnny Dawkins. And then last but not least, Sir Charles, who definitely was not shy about jacking up a three-point shot, even if it had uh, interesting results. You covered a lot there, so I'm going to try to. Uh, uh, I'm to sorry, I, I was ready. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> no, I, I, that's that's uh, that's why I love you, man. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the the first thing you brought up was Charles Barkley, and that this was not even even though he won MVP in '93, and most would say that was his peak. I would say that's his peak as well. Uh, yes, he he was more athletic in 1990 than he was in '93. I think in '93 he just had develop the mid-range jumper some more and develop that post game even more. Uh, and also had developed, I think a little bit more as a passer by that time. Yeah. But, uh, as far as the athleticism, I don't know if it's as much like stuff that helps him be a small forward though. Like I think his athleticism that was better was just kind of his, as you said, in transition, the straight line speed, taking the ball and sprinting up the floor mm-hmm. or just the vertical athleticism where he's getting up and, um, putting up some incredible defensive highlights with some blocks at the top of the square on the backboard. Um, so yeah, it's more like the run and jump athleticism, but he still to me was very slow laterally did not have great mobility, especially on the defensive end. So there was still times watching him where it's like, Oh yeah, he's, yeah, he's getting beat pretty easily off the dribble and also, he still had that tendency, maybe even more so in 90 than in 93, of just having some really poor decisions with, as far as gambling for steals. Yeah, I mean, defensively, we know Charles Barkley was not great there. I mean, positionally sound, he was not. Um, he could bang a little bit, you know, not 
super great there. I mean, he had some strength in that in that side, but he was definitely more of a gambler, both for steals and blocks. And when it looked great, it was it, when it when he did it and it succeeded, it looked amazing. Um, when he didn't, it um it was pretty rough. But I look at him almost like I look at like you said, you compared the um the the athleticism he brought to his position, and I agree with you. I think it was a matchup problem for opposing power forwards because again you look at the traditional more of the power forward back then a lot of those guys were bigger lumbering more bigs that you know rely on their muscle and strength more so than their speed um and that's just line straight line vertically you know side to side whatever the case may be charles barkley definitely had an advantage there offensively almost look at him on the defensive side i'm sorry defensively i mean rather almost look at him on the defensive side like i look at um magic johnson you look how fast they were getting up and down the court. You look at how athletic they were finishing on the basket on the offensive end. You look at how woefully out of position constantly they were on the defensive side, constantly shaken from quicker players on that side of the ball. And then you wonder why they played bigger, other bigger positions. I mean, Magic Johnson routinely guarded the four, you know, and sometimes even the five on the defensive side of the ball. Meanwhile, on the offensive side, I mean, he was a blur and all that speed meant nothing on the defensive side of the ball. So I think, you're right. Like it definitely is a, a matchup situation, a matchup issue where if Barkley doesn't get the steal or doesn't get a good position for the block, um, you know, he's just going to try to get the ball back and outscore you. That's kind of what's going to, kind of what the game is going to be. Um, only problem is 1990 Charles Barkley probably did the outscoring part better than most. Yeah. And at the small forward spot, obviously he's one of the greatest rebounders in NBA history. And if you have a, uh, that good of a rebounder at small forward, your team rebounding is obviously going to be ridiculous. And they were, an absolutely dominant offensive rebounding group. Um, you were you brought up Hersey Hawkins. It can't be overstated how important he was offensively to this team. It really was basically give Hersey Hawkins the ball or give Charles Barkley the ball and then go get an offensive rebound. That was like the whole the the whole uh, the offensive whole strategy for uh, for the Sixers, and uh, it worked reasonably well because yeah, they were they were second in the NBA in offense that season. Uh, so mm-hmm. it goes to show you how, just how good those two guys were in particular and then just how good they were at uh, getting second opportunities. But uh, you also brought up a guy in Ron Anderson off the bench, and uh, this is another fun aspect of going back and watching some of these old teams as you discover new players. And I couldn't help but fall in love with Ron Anderson. This guy, you you described him as a big, but I would almost describe him more as kind of a just a big wing. Where there you go. That's the, a better position. Yeah. Yeah, he had the ability to step out and hit 18 to 20-foot jumpers, but he was very good at putting it on the floor if you came out to contest that and getting all the way to the rim and finishing. Very good athlete, had some had some decent feel as a passer at times as well. Uh, had a couple of moments against the Cavs where he would, he would drive in, get under the basket, and then just sort of pitch it back to Charles as Charles's man had came, came away from him to help. Uh, so I really liked Ron Anderson, and I, and I feel like if this Sixers team were playing in a modern context, you obviously would take either Mahorn or Jaminski, probably Mahorn, put him on the bench and play Ron Anderson at the three and slide Charles down to the four. More than likely, you're right. In a more of a modern positioning, that does make a much more ideal fit than just we're having Mahorn there because he's a banger and we need bangers 1990 logo. You know what I mean? Like, Like, I'm definitely with you in terms of how how would a much better fit it would be now if they were to take a um, modern application uh, and, and apply it, you know, with this, with this, with this uh, roster. So let's get to the, uh, the 2004 Minnesota Timberwolves, a team with uh, a starting lineup of Sam Cassell, Latrell Sprewell, Trenton Sorry. 
I was obligated. I was obligated to say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Trenton Hassel, Kevin Garnett, and then Irvin Johnson off the bench. Some key guys, Fred Hoiberg, Michael Oloa candy and uh, Wally Zerbiak. So, uh, you know, again, I mentioned this team, very, very good. 58 wins ended up losing in the Western conference finals that season to the Lakers in part, because I, I think Sam Cassell was dealing with an injury in that series and was hobbled and even missed a, a couple of important games. Uh, but uh, that team was, uh, was, was quite excellent in large part due to Kevin Garnett's overall brilliance. Oh yeah. This was the Kevin Garnett season that everyone loves. I mean, this was the best season of his career from a statistical standpoint, scoring, you know, defensively being just in his absolute prime. And this time from someone who would then anchor some very solid defenses um, for another, you know, four to six years after the fact. So, you know, that just shows just how solid of a player that he was um, in 2004, it really all came together. I think it really all came together because he had, finally had a supporting cast that was uh, decent enough to amplify his already great abilities. Um, and let's, but, let's, let's not, uh, let's not go crazy either. Like this supporting cast was the best he ever had in Minnesota, but it's still not that good. Well, 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 time every, uh, listen, 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 if we're talking Latrell Spiewa, I won't entertain it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know right now, sir, but no, I'm with you. Honestly, if we're, if we're, if we're taking off the, 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 the Latrell Spiewa colored visor, um, I will admit that even by comparison, those his supporting cast only looks so good because from 1997 to 2003, it was so bad. And a lot of that was just due to injuries or, you know, you had like uh, Terrell Brandon, who had a very injury shortened year there a couple of years in Minnesota. You had a Troy Hudson who was even on that team, but was just always battling injuries, a noted Laker killer. You had uh, four, four different spells, Joe Smith, who wasn't super great, but was overpaid. Um, Wally Zerbiak, kind of one-dimensional scorer in that way. You didn't really have a lot of guys who really brought the best of Garnett's abilities. And all you really had really was two guys who, let's just be real, like they played well, but were past their prime. And a Sam Cassell and a Charles Freewell. The only thing that helped them out was that, like you said, with Sam Cassell, they were able to kind of stay relatively average for a longer period than not and Latrell Thrill, this was his last year before he did basically what um what Sam Cassell did in 2006 where they had that last good year and they kind of just really fell off in a major way except for Sam Cassell a lot of that could be attributed to, to injury um an age where Latrell Thrill was 35 and he relied a lot on athleticism but he did play a 2005 season with Minnesota and was nowhere near the same player which makes it even more startling that he was holding out for a contract extension yeah, uh, the the fascinating thing about this supporting cast, you know, you look at the center <laughs> rotation of Irvin Johnson and, uh, and Michael Olowokandi, like, that's... I don't know about you, that's a championship content. No, oh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Trenton Hassel was was a solid defensive piece, and you certainly need that with... Uh, sorry, sorry, I got to say it, Corbin. You you need a defense when you've got Sam Cassell and the trails pretty well in your oh back. Oh, my gosh. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. They were in their mid-30s. No, I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's he wasn't some exceptional player either. So, you know, the... The, the big difference, though, was, you know, Kevin Garnett was not the, the guy that leads a heliocentric sort of offensive attack. He just was never that kind of a player. His greatest strength was his versatility. 
um, and on both ends. But uh, offensively, you know, I think one of the things that made him special was his ability at that time to pick and pop. And just having a guy in Sam Cassell who you could screen for, and if the defense doesn't respect him, he can make that open 17-foot jumper just made all the difference. And just not having that for most of his career was just so – I'm sure infuriating to him and also infuriating to me as a viewer, but uh, yeah, just having that uh, a couple of guys and a guy in Spreewell who also like occasionally when Garnett is a little bit tired, you, you can give Spreewell the ball and despite his inefficiency, he can create some offense and, and, and put some points on the board. Yep. Uh, just having that was so big. And then Garnett was able to step more into and be, his best version, the best version of himself, which was a guy that, yeah, was an unselfish player, made the next pass, hit the open jumper, set solid screens, and then just was a wrecking ball defensively. Yeah, the dude covered so much ground, had just this preternatural ability to kind of sense out opponents' offensive actions before they transpired, and, and just really did a great job in holding together a defensive unit that you're, that you're right. I mean, all due respect was surrounded by less than ideal defensive personnel, but slanted more toward the offensive end to provide Garnett with more help, especially like you said, considering the fact that he just wasn't that type of player to do it all himself. But I mean, this is Garnett who's swinging, you know, helping on his main assignment, swinging to the weak side, um, you know, becoming uh, the, the primary rim protector, even though he was playing alongside much bigger big men, albeit slower and more plotting. Um, and so, yeah, you did have, that that issue to kind of deal with and that's what Garnett did and he did it very effectively yeah so let's let's get into the matchups because I think this is the most interesting element of this and in large part because you've got teams and you know there's a 14-year gap here it's a it's a bit of a different era even though both are pretty defensive uh, eras Uh, but you know the Sixers again playing Charles Barkley at the three uh that presents an interesting sort of dilemma for that, that 2004 Timberwolves squad, not only because it makes it difficult to, to rebound the basketball, the, the Wolves were 10th in defensive rebounding percentage in 2004. So a solid defensive rebounding team. But uh, again, I, I can't overstate just how dominant the Sixers were on the offensive glass with, uh, with that, just uh, with that giant front court. But, uh, yeah. you know, who who does Kevin Garnett defend? Do, do you put him on Charles Barkley, even though I feel like maybe Garnett's biggest weakness defensively was his lack of strength? And that was one of the things that Charles Barkley took advantage of the most throughout his career. Yeah, I feel like that strength would be a significant factor for Barkley. What he does give up in size, much like most of his career, what he does give up in size, he does make up with that strength and that relentlessness on the glass. Um, I think quickness is kind of a wash, especially when you consider that as quick as Charles Barkley was in that year, Kevin Garnett was just a, a defensive freak in terms of speed, athleticism, and all of that, you know, in his 6'10 frame, so 6'11", really. So you're, you're kind of getting an even ability on that. But... um yeah, that's a. That, I think that honestly, if you're if you want Garnett to kind of have his his best, um, his his defensive abilities utilized in the best way, you want to have him kind of as a roamer. I think you almost want to play him off of Rick Mahorn. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. Um, he's you know because Jaminski, as you stated, is probably too good of a shooter. You know, if, if yeah. Garnett is leaving him, Jaminski will make you pay uh, with with the jumper. 
Whereas Mahorn, yeah, like he, Mahorn can post up a little bit. You know, maybe he could take advantage of Garnett on the block some. Mahorn was a big, strong dude himself. But, uh, you know, he's still probably the most limited offensive player in that starting lineup for the Sixers. So, And, and he's going to be the guy that is most restricted to being in the paint area. And that's where you want Garnett to, to uh, you know, again, wreak havoc, block shots, get steals, and just muck things up. But uh, the other interesting thing, I think, and, uh, you know, you know, so if you don't put, yeah. if you don't put Garnett on Barkley, then if you put him on Mahorn, then who is guarding Barkley? Who is guarding Jabinski? That is a good question. I mean, Jabinski, you want to have, that's where it gets weird. That's where it gets funky. I mean, you can kind of do like a cross match, maybe do like a Trent Hassel on Jabinski. He wasn't really the post-up guy. He could do it, but that wasn't really truly his game. So you can kind of look at it that way if you wanted to. Um, Barkley is the one, I mean, honestly, if we're being realistic, like that's kind of the one a clear advantage that you look to when you look at when you look at um, Philadelphia, because whoever you put them on, it's, it's not going to be an ideal matchup for them. You know, whether that is going to be a, a Latrell Sprewell, um, it definitely certainly will not be um, a Sam Cassell. You know, and and after that point, you're looking at guys who are just not equipped for that role in terms of more your backcourt of swingman guys. So it, it's kind of weird in that way. I think that you maybe do more of a junket up kind of defense and defend by committee on Barkley. Um, go to him taking the outside shot. You know, that was kind of his weakness, and he was definitely not afraid of taking it, even if just like my friend Russell Westbrook, he probably should have been. Um, but like he is a massive issue because I'm not really sure who you put on him that you say, okay, you know what, that guy can reasonably stay in front of Barkley, especially this is like close to prime Barkley as we get, unless you, you know, really want to factor in um, of course, the 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 1993 uh Phoenix edition. Yeah, such uh such Mike Jaminski slander on this podcast from Corbin. I mean, we're we're talking about a guy that uh just the year prior to the the ninety season, averaged seventeen point two points per game for Philadelphia. The, the dude, the dude could score. And Corbin's uh, Corbin's suggestion is put Trent Hassel on him. But uh, uh, listen, I, I'm just saying, I like I listen, I like Mike Jaminski. The dude was a solid pro. Played what thirteen years, like really good guy. But like he's he's shooting the mid range jet. You know, he's not no Chris Kamen. You know, that's not that's not he's not a low post threat down there. He's not an Elton Brand. You know, like he's a solid guy. You know, don't leave him open. Okay, try and hassle. Don't leave him open. I think I think that's a I think that's an okay strategy. Yeah, the, the, other, <laughs> oh, the other concern I have with though with Hassel on Jabitsky is I would like Hassel on Hawkins because Hawkins is the chasing, yes, is the big perimeter threat for Philly. And again, I would say Barkley and Hawkins are the two guys that if you're gonna slow down the Sixers offense, it's well, yeah, yeah, those are the two guys you've got to slow down. And if you're putting Sprewell or Cassell on Hawkins, I mean, Hersey's going to go off. Well, that's my question to you then. Who exactly does uh, Cassell and Sprewell guard? I mean, I guess you could say Cassell could guard Johnny Dawkins, but let's not forget Johnny Dawkins was a water bug guard with a decent mid-range shot, had really gotten a three ball coming around then before he really got injured for the first of a few injuries that really shortened his career for good. The guy moved at a pace that Sam Cassell um, could match maybe for a little bit, but definitely could certainly not match for the majority of Dawkins' minutes. Yeah, um, you know, watching Dawkins, yeah, he's he's certainly extremely quick, mm-hmm. but uh, I also like I don't trust him as a finisher, so I'm almost Whoa. not even that concerned. Dawkins slander. <laughs> yeah. You come over here and you give him Dawkins. Wow. 
<laughs> I mean, listen, the guy, I, I have the numbers right here. Okay. Dawkins, yeah, 48% from the field, you know, for, for him, not super great um, from 250%. But the guy, I mean, he did have a lot of that mid-range J. Maybe if he didn't rely on that as much, he wouldn't be, um, he'd be a little more effective. But he could get to the lane like no one's business when he was healthy. And we're presuming full health here. I'm not saying that Johnny Dawkins is a problem, but like, I mean, the guy's no slouch. You're just going to, you talk about Mike Jaminski slander. Meanwhile, you're going to have Dawkins get to the lane. Eh, don't know if he's going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I I may be overvaluing what I saw specifically in that uh, in that Cavs series from watching a couple of games, but uh-huh. uh, you know that Cavs team didn't exactly have the greatest defensive backcourt in the likes of. Oh Mark come Price on, Mike Price Craig, was a monster, and, and <laughs> Craig Elo. <laughs> you know the, those guys are not scaring teams. Hey, hey, and, and and Dawkins, I don't think made them uh, or punished them too much, but but yeah. <laughs> Kilo guarded Jordan. Okay, <laughs> but, but yeah, like when I look at the matchups here, I'm seeing a lot more problems for Minnesota trying to deal with what Philadelphia offers than vice versa. You know, it's funny. I first I look. I'm not gonna lie. When I first looked at the matchup, I thought it'd be interesting to see you kind of compare for see how I would kind of argue for Philadelphia. I said, okay, Philadelphia goes AD. You know. Um, and some of their guys off the bench, you know, I'm like, okay, Minnesota will attack, but honestly, this might be the more, the most perfect matchup again, just like we're talking about the, between the bulls and the Clippers to make it competitive, because although Minnesota was a better team, the way that they were a better team, it fits right hand and glove for a Philadelphia team that had the exact weaknesses that they could, that, that, I mean, they had the exact strengths that they could use to exploit for minute for Minnesota. Um, and yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you look at guys. Like, I mean, Barkley obviously is the one guy and Hersey Hawkins, but that one-two punch, that's the one-two punch that Minnesota struggled to defend. You know, you look at the three spot and you look at that two spot, and mind you, the three spot, because Barkley's at the three, you don't really have a great defensive matchup for that. And unlike Chicago, you don't really have a lot of guys with that type of positional size that you could like argue, okay, you know what, theoretically, they'll do a decent job staying in front of. I mean, I would argue Latrell Spiel, but I would argue Latrell Spiel on anybody, and that's not factual, so, you know. Yeah, and, you know, to me, if you're going to beat that uh, that Sixers team, it's in large part you're going to take advantage of the their, their going big. You know, the, that team, the, the Sixers ended up ultimately losing to the 1990 Chicago Bulls. And what did the Bulls have? Well, they've got Scottie Pippen at small forward mm-hmm. who, you know, is going to take advantage of Charles Barkley defending him. Yeah. Um, whereas like this Minnesota team, you know, Charles Barkley could just guard Trenton Hassel. Is Trenton Hassel really going to do much? Not, I, mean, not I, particularly. I suppose they can bring in like a, a Wally Zerbiak as well, but is Wally Zerbiak really punishing Charles off the dribble a bunch? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so yeah, there's, there's some big concerns here. And, you know, the other thing too is I also like that Philadelphia has this, this sort of get out of jail card in Ron Anderson, where in the event that Minnesota somehow outplays that big lineup that Philadelphia could downsize with Anderson and play that way. Um, So yeah, there's, there's not a ton that I like here for, for uh, Minnesota, although again, I, I guess also looking at this, and and this might be even more Johnny Dawkins slander, but um, you know the the Sixers backcourt they were small, so guys like Cassell and Sprewell would have 
some size advantages to uh, to get their own offense going. I'm not going to lie. Of all the six of slander you've given so far, that is actually the least egregious. I completely agree with you on that. <laughs> I think that both those guys, uh, Sprewell was very good in the post uh, for for a guy that rely a lot on the athletic talent. And we already know that Sam Cassell feasted in the low post. So I do think those two guys would have a, a pretty uh, – Pretty uh, relatively easy going against a, a backcourt of an undersized Johnny Dawkins, even though he was waterbug on the defensive end, could definitely be outmatched from a physical perspective. And a Hersey Hawkins, who was, you know, merely fine on the defensive end. Yeah, and and both teams kind of have the the sharpshooter off the bench with Minnesota with Fred Hoiberg and uh, yeah. and Philadelphia with Scott Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm I'm interested. You were saying that Philly went eight deep. Who who else from from the bench did you see get some minutes? Because again, from from watching the limited time I saw with that Cavs series, it was mostly just Anderson and Brooks that I saw come off the come off the bench. Well, by that time, I think Derek Smith was out. Okay. Um, yeah. But Derek Smith, I watched a few. I watched like three or four Philadelphia games, at least portions of them, um, to try to get a different look. And uh, earlier in the season, depending on some regular season matchups, Derek Smith was the kind of like their seventh guy. In fact, Brooks kind of got more time once Smith was kind of out, it felt like. Okay, yeah. And, uh, you know, he's uh, looking at Derek Smith, 6'6", a guy that, uh, you know, could play on the wing as well. So, again, if the Sixers want to downsize and we're assuming both teams healthy in this theoretical matchup, that uh, he gives them another uh, an, uh, some some more roster flexibility and some more versatility to their lineups. Exactly, and I wanted to say one more one more plug for it because Garrett, you got to read it. But um, the curse it goes really deep into Derek Smith, basically how he came. Almost, I don't want to say a Jimmy Butler esque story in terms of background because it wasn't, but in terms of becoming a basketball player that um kind of came in just like a decent guy and made himself to the point that Michael Jordan when he played with the Clippers Michael Jordan was like wow like Derek Smith like is going to be like a real problem and then he had that horrific um ACL knee injury he had was never the same and the curse kind of follows that in depth he was a guy who could get to the basket finish well had decent of mid-range shot um but was a really good slashing guard and once he had that that series of of injuries it really sapped all his quickness he still was able to get there in spurts but became a much more uh mid-range shooter uh, but even then, he was kind of at the tail end of his effectiveness uh, in that 90 season with Philadelphia. Yeah, so was there anything else, Corbin, you wanted to talk about? Anything you got in your notes before we we uh, select a winner here? Uh, no, not really. I think just looking at just how dominant Charles Barkley was, I think it's a real shame he didn't win that MVP uh Magic Johnson won 1990, but you look at Charles Barkley, just the impact on the team. Uh, we go from points, rebounds, steals, uh, field goal percentage, uh, effective field goal percentage, PR, minutes per game, offensive rebound percentage, offensive box plus minus, VORP, offensive rating, all of that, Charles Barkley. Like the guy literally was the precursor of Monte Ellis because he did it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I know you. Uh, there was uh, there was some news today that uh, Monte Ellis was even what was he trying out for the Lakers? So. The Lakers are interested. I'm Garrett. You can't tell me nothing if he joins the Lakers, man. I'm in cloud nine. I don't care if we lose in the first round. Actually, I would care. But <laughs> I'm surprised you were able to compose yourself with that news enough to even do this podcast, dude. I only because I like whoo 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 for like half an hour on Twitter beforehand. Um, I had to get it out first. This gave me, you gave me the time needed to decompress a little bit and better compose myself or we wouldn't have a a good show here, (laughs) but no, I'm ready to break it down. Let's, let's get into our final matchup. All right. So 
The, uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves, again, are the five seed here. So they have home court advantage in this theoretical seven game series. And uh, for the last one, I picked first. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Corbin. And uh, who's going to win this series and in how many games? So I ended up, I went back and forth on this because I thought the Barkley was just so dominant. Um, but I went with the Timberwolves in seven. And I think only because although Kevin Garnett is not that guy to take the offense by storm, I think he was going to get consistent reps on the offensive end, which I do think Minnesota would feed him. I struggle to think who would guard him adequately on that side. I mean, you could look at someone like a Rick Mahorn to kind of bang out there and frustrate him if we're going by that type of rules, um, if we're going by that type of like role and just kind of projecting his role there, but if we're going by just like basketball skill set wise, Garnett could shoot over him. Garnett was faster getting to the basket. Um, and the speed that he had at his skill set, I think would be a lot. Um, I'm looking at a Herculean effort for a Kevin Garnett to get the Wolves to beat the 76ers. But again, we're basically comparing two teams that relied on their one star player for Herculean efforts to get them where they were to begin with. Um, and honestly, I just felt that Charles Barkley's lack of defense would come to hurt him at some point. Uh, although fleshing it out more with you is starting to make me think a little bit differently because I'm sitting there going, yeah, theoretically it would, but would it come from this team? And now I'm not quite sure. But I say Timberwolves in seven. I, I should say I reserve the right to change, but I'm going to lock it in, um, get what you think, and then maybe just turn around and agree with you. So I'm going to go Sixers in six. And uh, All right. The the big part of it is, and, and yes, I'm fully I fully understand that Kevin Garnett could absolutely just dominate the series and, and win it basically by himself. But given all of the advantages that I think just matchup wise that the Sixers have, and also that in this particular matchup, I think all of Garnett's weaknesses are exposed. The fact that he's you know, he was never, I don't, I think like just a super elite defensive rebounder. That wasn't one of his defensive strengths. He wasn't, you know, a very strong player and the Sixers just have like in Barkley and, Mul- uh, and Mahorn alone are just two of the strongest dudes that have ever played the game. Um, True. They, they just have some, there's, there's just not a lot of great options for Garnett on the defensive end. And uh, he's going to be exposed in in certain ways. And then also, yeah, like, you know, I I don't think Minnesota can match up to the size of Philadelphia and really punish them on the offensive end or be able to hold them off of the uh, the offensive glass on the other. And, you know, we we talked about the issues of like, well, if if uh, if Trenton Hassel is guarding the likes of Mike Jaminski, you know, who's guarding Hersey Hawkins and Hersey Hawkins is a terrific, terrific score. So, yeah, I, uh, I give the edge slightly to, to the Sixers here, even though, yeah, I think in a vacuum, the, the Timberwolves are a better basketball team, but again, basketball is largely about matchups. And I think this is just a bad matchup for the Timberwolves. No, I have, I have to agree with you. I mean, now I'm going to turn around. I was already on the fence. Now that I said, we, I made these predictions pre um, discussion and I got to think about, but you made a great point. The, the strengths that Philadelphia have probably directly exploit weaknesses that Minnesota had. And yeah, it is shocking on paper, 
to think, oh, 90, 76ers, who were they? And 2004 Timberwolves, because the legend of Garnett in that season has already just reached epic portions. When you really dive in um, and give it 35 minutes of analysis that it really needs, such as what me and Garrett have provided here, uh, I think you really see clearly uh, who is the victim. Yeah, so uh, uh, everyone mark that down. I convinced Corbin to change his mind. and He totally uh, did. <laughs> and, and that was hard because, again, one guy has a trust free well and one guy doesn't. i gotta say corbin i got i gotta do it i'm sorry i gotta do it no latrell spreewell is the second best shooting guard in this series what (laughs) over her you know what over hersey hawkins over i'll give you that if you say the second best person on the timberwolves then i might argue but no no if you say the second best shooting guard on the timberwolves i'd be like what but no against hersey hawkins like looking back on that year uh no it was a very very good year for him and we're talking about like Young Hersey Hawk is not quite in his prime versus past his prime and Latrell Sprewell, who really probably got a boost because he went to a Minnesota team that was starving for just exactly the type of production he provided. Uh, you know, again, me with the random analogies, but remember that 2018-2019 Lakers team when they needed desperately any type of rim defense and they swung a trade with the Phoenix Suns for Tyson Chandler, way past his prime, just stick in the middle of the lane, Tyson Chandler, and yeah. they immediately went on like a mini winning streak, not because Tyson Chandler was really any good, but just because what he provided was exactly what the Lakers needed. That's what Latrell Sprewell seems like to me that 2004 Timberwolves year. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. And and you know when you when you bring it up, I had to I considered it for several seconds. You know, Sprewell or Hoiberg, who is better? But wow, know. wow, wow! This is where we end the show. <laughs> <laughs> All oh, right, man. Corbin. Well, this was this was an absolute blast as always. Uh, again, uh, you can follow Corbin on Twitter at Corbin NBA. Check out his show, Round Ball Ramble, doing a lot of, of great stuff on there. And uh, yeah, um, we'll uh, hopefully get uh, maybe one or two more of these in before the next season starts. Yes, please. I'm ready. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review preferably five stars and uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show that would be much appreciated we are also on spotify so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well if you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast you can find me on twitter at garrett bougay that's g-a-r-r-e-t-t-b-u-g-a-y i will be uh tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine including soccer and film and television so uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the the course of the week you can find me there you can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at Corbin NBA that's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A so uh, he uh, he does a does a good job on Twitter as well he's very active I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or 
Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.